Drama Mystery. I am your host, Kelly. Let's talk crime, just you and me. Whoa. You like that? Is that really going to be it? I mean, for today. You're feeling yourself today. Maybe next week will be something different. <laughs> that was insane. Did What's you up, like guys? It? I'm Austin, the co-host. Welcome back to Mama Mystery. I am your host, Kelly. And I am Austin. Your I mean, it's like I'm holding in a sneeze if I don't just do the intro the way it's always done. Feel you, babe. That was really good. Thank you. Um, okay, we have so many things to talk about. First things first, I'm pregnant, and I feel like we should be talking about that because on Instagram, some of you guys follow us on there. I accidentally posted a picture that I thought I was posting posting to my personal page, but I posted it to Mom and Mystery. Um, and it was of my belly. I'm about 15 weeks pregnant now. We're due with a baby girl in July. So let me just put it out there because I had a few people like, did I miss the announcement? And I was like, no, I'm just an idiot. And I didn't realize I posted it to that page. And I but, helped make it. Yeah. Austin would like everyone to know he is not a virgin. I helped make it. He helped make this one. He helped make the last one too. So Two times. Allegedly. Two times. <laughs> oh my god! Um, if you saw that story, I was dying laughing in the car when he was like, "So two two times sex." Like yep. <laughs> he yep. short circuited because he, I don't know, two kids, two times. Let's go. It. We're having a baby, baby girl. Yeah, and I'm having the weirdest dreams. I don't know if anyone can relate to this, having really strange, vivid dreams when you are pregnant. But the other night, I had a dream that. We found this house and I really wanted to buy it because it would fit all of our kids that we have. And I was like, oh, we've got to buy this house. And in my dream, Austin was like leading me on thinking we were going to buy it. And then at the end, he was like, no, we're not buying it. And I got so upset that I turned myself into the police and I asked them at the police department to just detain me for the night because I didn't know what I was going to do. And then we woke up and I got treated like shit for the first 30 minutes of the day. I actually was kind of mad. I woke up and I was kind of mad at him. For not letting me. I'm sure there's husbands out there who can relate to your wife had some dream you cheated on her in the middle of the night, and then you get and you're in the doghouse all morning. You didn't do anything. Well, but you did do something in the dream, so (laughs) that's false. Um, Anything else? Anything else you want to talk about? I don't think so. What's new with you, Austin? Tell me about your life. How are you feeling? Nobody wants to hear about me. (laughs) They're here to hear crime stuff. Facts. Okay, (laughs) we're gonna just dive on in three minutes, and that wasn't a huge. Um, Sidetrack. Whatever. Okay. Today we're talking about Brianna Dennison. Have you ever heard about this case? Never in my life. Of course. Okay. So Brianna Zunino Dennison was born on March 29th, 1988 to her parents, Jeff and Bridget. Her little brother, Brighton, was born in January of 1993, and the Dennison family was very tight. They lived in Reno, Nevada. Brianna's dad, Jeffrey, founded this company called Colette Productions when he was only 17 years old, and he gained a respectable reputation for producing and hosting these big arts and crafts fairs. So he grew up, or he grew the company um, exponentially. And then in 1992, he was awarded the Governor's Industry Achievement Award and also Who's Who Among Rising Young Americans. But then in 1994, when Brianna was just six years old, Jeffrey's business was being investigated on federal embezzlement allegations. He was accused of kiting checks for about $900,000 and also embezzling $1.5 million as part of a pyramid scheme. 
Although he maintained his innocence, the stress became too much for Jeffrey to bear, and he hung himself in his office in April of 1994, leaving Bridget to raise Brianna and Brighton by herself. After Jeffrey's passing, Bridget moved her kids back to her hometown of Mendocino, California. This is where the kids were surrounded by grandparents, aunts, uncles, cousins, and close friends. This village of people around Brianna and Brighton really helped to raise them into amazing human beings. Growing up, Bridget gave Brianna the nickname Breezy, and a lot of people called her Bree. I was in school with a girl named Brianna that was nicknamed Breezy. No way. Swear. Why? Do you know why she was called Breezy? She was good at basketball and stuff. I don't know if it's something to do with her being sporty or what, but... That's interesting. Breezy. That's cool. Well, Brianna's nickname was Breezy because she was like a breath of fresh air on a cool summer day, according to her mom. Much of her adolescence was spent traveling all over the world. She traveled to Hawaii, New York, Mexico, Jamaica, Japan, Italy, Egypt, Hungary, and Austria, and France. She even spent a year studying in Rome. She had a compassionate heart, understanding of everyone in any situation. She was very open-minded. Not only was she so radiant on the inside, but she was radiant on the outside. Brianna was a very beautiful girl. The Denisons moved back to Reno right before Bree started high school, and she graduated from Reno High School in 2006. After graduating, she attended Santa Barbara City College, majoring in child psychology. When Bree was a sophomore, she, be- she came to Reno for winter break. And she was so excited to reconnect with some of her friends from high school. She really wanted to make the most of every day that she had back in Reno. So she made a list of all the events that she wanted to attend. And one of those events was the SWAT 72 snowboarding festival on the night of Saturday, January 19th. Sounds pretty dope. Can't blame her. SWAT 72 stands for Summer Winter Action Tours, and it's like a festival of about 3,500 college kids. They get together to snowboard, gamble, party, listen to live music, and it's usually 72 hours long. Drink soda? Yeah, lots and lots of soda. She told her mom that she'd be going to this event with her friend Katie Hunter and that she'd be spending the night at her house. So Katie, Brianna, and one of Katie's roommates, Jessica, went to this festival, and then they went to Mel's Diner inside the Sands Regency Hotel at the end of their night for like a late night, early morning breakfast before they were taken home at about 4 a.m. Jessica went home earlier in the night, so four male friends brought Katie and Bree back. Katie gave Bree two blankets, a pillow, and a teddy bear to prop up the pillow so Brianna could be comfortable enough to sleep on the couch in the living room. And the couch was facing the glass-paneled front door that they left unlocked. The next morning, when Katie woke up and went into the living room, Bree was not there. And on her pillow, there was a small red stain about the size of a golf ball on the corner of the pillow. Katie assumed maybe Bree moved up to one of the other roommates' bedrooms in the middle of the night because the living room was freezing and one of the roommates wasn't there that night. So Katie started making breakfast, and when she went to retrieve her car from the casino, she returned to the house at about 9.45, and she still hadn't seen Bree. So she went up to that other roommate's bedroom, where she assumed Bree was still sleeping, and knocked on the door, but there was no response. Bree's phone, purse, shoes, all of her belongings were still downstairs, so she knew Bree could not have left. She knocked on the door harder, still no response, and when she finally got into the bedroom, Bree was not there. 
So Katie called Bree's mom, Bridget, to tell her what was going on. Bridget dropped everything to head to the house. While she was on her way there, Katie called Bridget again because once she got a closer look at that pillow, she realized that the stain was actually blood, and now she was fearing the worst. So Katie hung up and called 911. When police arrived, it wasn't immediately obvious that something horrible had taken place, but one thing after another started painting a clearer picture. Katie gave Bree two blankets the night before. One of those blankets was still on the couch, but the other blanket was on the kitchen floor near the back door. And upon closer inspection of the pillow, they found that the blood seemed to be mixed with smeared mascara marks, mucus, and even a bite mark as if Brianna's face had been pressed hard into the pillow during an attack. Bree was immediately classified as a missing person and the news of her disappearance spread quickly. The red stain from the pillow was tested and came back as a match to Brianna. So clearly during her abduction, she, she suffered an injury to either her mouth, throat, or nose. DNA was also collected from the doorknobs of the house that indicated the profile of an unidentified male. So police sought out the four men who brought the girls home that night, the driver that brought Jessica home, and also Bree's boyfriend, Cameron. Bree started dating Cameron during her freshman year of college, and the night before, right before Bree fell asleep, she talked to Cameron on the phone. The two of them had an argument because he didn't feel comfortable with her going out and partying all night like she had done. But Cameron lived in Oregon, and he was in Oregon at the time that Bree disappeared. So he was cleared as a suspect, along with the drivers that brought the girls home that night. The search for Bree was in full force, with volunteers scouring the area, dogs, helicopters, police combed through the nearby vacant areas. Officers went door to door in the neighborhood asking neighbors if they remembered seeing or hearing anything suspicious that night. The DNA found on the doorknobs wasn't yielding any matches in the national database, and it didn't match any of the people that the girls were with that night. So without much to go on, investigators expanded their search to look into incidents involving college women in the area since they were near the University of Nevada, Reno campus, and they came upon the following report. In the early morning hours of December 16, 2007, Reno police officer Andrew Hickman and several other officers were dispatched to an address in the 1400 block of North Virginia Street to take a complaint from a young woman who had been kidnapped and sexually assaulted. The woman explained that she lived alone in an apartment in the, in the immediate vicinity and that she had arrived in her vehicle at approximately 2 a.m. As she got out of her vehicle in the apartment complex's parking lot, she said that she had been physically assaulted by a stranger who knocked her to the ground and attempted to choke her with her right arm. Failing in that effort, he had placed his hand over her nose and mouth, causing her to pass out. He covered her head with a hooded sweatshirt and then took her to a nearby pickup truck and forced her inside. The victim reported that her assailant then drove not far away, only about three or four minutes, stopped in a dark and secluded area and told her, quote, if you see my face, if you tell the police, I will kill you before he sodomized her. Mm. When he had finished his sexual assault, he drove her back to her residence, keeping the panties that she had been wearing and telling her that he might be back. The victim told the investigators that her assailant was wearing a red short sleeve shirt with a blue neckline and a slick finish like a silk or polyester. She thought the shirt might have had a word embroidered on the upper left breast. She recalled that the attacker wore pants like sports pants, 
made out of a soft material with an elastic waistband, but no zipper. She also said that she had seen a baby's shoe on the front seat floorboard. The victim was examined for evidence of sexual attack, and several swabs were submitted to the Washoe County Crime Laboratory for analysis. The lab established the presence of a foreign male DNA profile. The victim's clothing was also examined, and gray fiber consistent with the floorboard of a vehicle was found. Most compelling of all, the DNA matched the DNA profile in the Brianna Dennison case. Detective Jenkins noted that the December attack had occurred in the same neighborhood from which Brianna had been abducted, at a location less than 500 yards away. During follow-up interviews with the December victim, Jenkins learned that the attacker had been a white male likely between the ages of 20 and 30 years old, between 5 feet 9 inches and 6 feet 3 inches in height, with a large or somewhat heavy build in brown hair. He was described as having thick, meaty fingers and spoke clear, fluent English with no discernible regional dialect or accent. A month prior to the December incident, another report was filed on November 13th from a 21-year-old UNR student. She'd been walking through the parking lot of an apartment complex on College Drive when a man ran up behind her and put her in a chokehold. He dragged her between cars in the parking lot and at one point pushed her to the ground and began sexually assaulting her. She fought back and screamed at the top of her lungs, despite the attacker warning her to be quiet. She kept screaming, so he kicked her in the head and ran off in fear that her screams were drawing attention to the scene. On the ground beside her, he left multiple unopened condoms. The DNA collected from that attack also matched the assailant from Bree's abduction. One month prior to that, on October 22nd, another female UNR student was attacked in a UNR parking garage, and the details were eerily similar to the other attacks as well. But she never reported this crime. It was actually a friend of the victim who came forward to report it after the news of Brianna's disappearance. Why would you not report it? Oh my gosh, that is like, that is a question that victims get asked a lot Mm -hmm. and it's something that is so misunderstood and i'm not trying to be insulting when i say it i see how it could be rude rude yeah it it absolutely can be rude and insensitive and i'm not meaning it like that at all i just i'm just the guy on sideline listening to true crime no i get it and i i'm glad that you asked it because i think this is a good learning moment a good teaching moment that a lot of victims in cases like this don't come forward either because of shame or for fear of not being believed or because it's so traumatic that they don't know how to cope. There's so many reasons that are valid reasons. But So is it almost like a like if you're in a domestic abuse relationship and not leaving, like it would be like saying, well, why not leave? Like is it Yeah, like it's that? it's a psychology that we can't understand because we've never been through it. So to that, ask no, her why sense. she has her own reasons, but her friend ended up coming forward and talking about it after the news of the disappearance because she believed there was some connection. Yes. Okay. So detectives took the description of his vehicle from the victim in December, and they were able to narrow it down to likely being a Toyota Tacoma four-wheel drive pickup, likely made between 2001 and 2006. The new year is here and we are committed to kicking it off right by finding small ways to help us look and feel our best. Whether it's joining a new gym or eating healthier foods, we really want to prioritize taking care of ourselves inside and out. 
My New Year's resolution is to learn Spanish, and I am on a streak right now of 35 days so far, so I'm sticking to it. And I also want to read more. But another one of my New Year's resolutions is to take better care of my skin, and I'm doing just that with help from Apostrophe. Whether you're dealing with hormonal acne, breakouts, signs of aging, or acne scarring, Apostrophe's mission is to empower you and help you feel confident and comfortable in your own skin. Apostrophe is an online platform that connects you with an expert dermatology team to get customized acne treatment for your unique skin. Apostrophe offers access to prescription treatments for all types of skin concerns from acne to aging and wrinkles to rosacea. Simply fill out an online consultation about your skin goals and your medical history, snap a few selfies, and a dermatology provider will create a customized treatment plan specifically for you. My personal skincare goals are to reduce some sunspots that I have on my cheeks from excessive tanning in my naive and younger days. I just have a few little dark spots on my cheeks that I'd like to lighten up. So I'm really excited to see how the before and after pictures compare after I've used this for a month. Anyway, I went on the website. I was truly shocked at how simple it was to create an account, choose a dermatology provider, and receive a personalized plan for my unique skin. I sent in a few pictures of my skin. There was no appointment needed, no driving, no waiting in an office, or even waiting months for an appointment. And before I knew it, a dermatologist prescribed me exactly what he thought I needed, and it was on its way in the mail. It literally does not get more convenient than that. Once I got the package in the mail, I was so excited to try it. They even included these little stickers that you can put on your product bottle. I actually gave them to my daughter because she is just starting her skincare journey. So I am encouraging her to start young, something that I wish I would have done. And right now we have a special deal for our audience where you can get your first visit for only $5 by going to apostrophe.com slash MM when you use our code MM. That is a savings of $15 and it's only available to our Mama Mystery listeners. So to get started, just go to apostrophe.com slash MM and click get started. Then use our code MM at sign up and you'll get your first visit for only $5. Thank you so much to Apostrophe for sponsoring this episode. Then on February 15th, Three weeks after Brie went missing, there was a heartbreaking break in the case. A man named Alberto Jimenez was on his lunch break when he was walking back to work from a local subway. He decided to cut through a vacant lot as a shortcut when he noticed something bright orange standing out from a discarded pile of tree limbs or possibly a trashed Christmas tree. And it stood out among the field of sagebrush. The snow had finally begun to melt and revealed what was hiding underneath it. At first, Alberto thought he was looking at a mannequin, but he soon realized that he was looking at the body of a woman. He'd heard about the missing girl, Brianna Dennison, but he didn't believe it was her at first, so he ran back to his work to call 911. Police quickly identified the body as being that of Brianna Dennison. Mm. She was unclothed except for her orange socks. She had an open wound on her right arm, and it was evident that a sexual assault had taken place. She was covered in bruises and had clear marks around her neck. Underneath her knee, detectives found two pairs of women's underwear, including a lacy pink thong that was later determined to have been used to strangle Brianna. 
Swab samples taken from Brianna's body confirmed the presence of sperm and the DNA was consistent with the sample found at the house and in the other rape cases. But oddly enough, the pink underwear was not Brianna's. It was later determined that they belonged to Katie, the girl who rented the house that Brianna was taken from. But how would the attacker have gotten that pair of underwear? Katie locked her bedroom door that night. So is it possible that this person entered the house prior to the girls getting home? The other pair of underwear was black with the Pink Panther cartoon on the front, and those did not belong to Katie or Brianna. So where did those come from? It was clear that Reno had a serial rapist, now murderer, on the loose, and detectives worked quickly to develop a profile. Thousands of tips poured in from the community, and more than 700 men voluntarily submitted their DNA samples to eliminate themselves as suspects and narrow down the list. The survivors of the attacks the prior year were asked to help develop a composite sketch of the attacker, and this sketch was shared with the community. But spring and summer passed with no substantial leads. That is until November 1st of 2008, when a call came in to the Reno police. An anonymous caller through the tips hotline reported that a man named James Bila was acting strangely and fit some of the criteria of the profile that was being shared on this serial rapist. She also said that her friend was the girlfriend of James, and this girlfriend confided in her recently that their young child had found women's underwear in the glove compartment of James's truck and brought them to his mom. On November 6th, Detective Adam... That'd be a problem in itself. Can we just point that out? Oh, for sure. Can you imagine, like... If if one of the kids walked in and said, hey, look what I found in daddy's truck, and it was some pink thong, mm-hmm. that's a problem. Yes, that in itself is a problem. Now we got a bigger effing problem. So the fact that this girlfriend confided in her friend, maybe she was confiding in her because she thought it was simply that he was cheating on her. Mm-hmm. But this friend started putting more of the pieces together and was like, I think it's actually more than just that. There's also this serial rapist in Reno, and he kind of matches some of the description, and his behavior has been odd as well. Even his boss pointed out that after Brianna was found, he started acting strangely at work, and that is something that they ask the public to be aware of is that if you or like if someone you know or are close with starts acting strangely after like a missing person has been found, sometimes they get really anxious and they can't hide it. Mm-hmm. And so that's something that they ask people to look for and report to mm-hmm. the tips hotline. So that's what this friend was doing. So on November 6th, Detective Adam Wagnat, Wag, uh, I'm going to butcher this, Wignanski, we're going to call him Detective Adam, <laughs> followed up on this tip and called James to ask him some questions. James never asked him what he was investigating. That's a red flag. The next day, Detective Adam met with James, who was a 27-year-old pipe fitter and former Marine who was discharged due to his drug use. During their encounter, the detective asked James if he would offer a sample of his DNA, and he refused. James appeared very nervous during this interview, and he refused to make eye contact with the detective. At this point, James was living in Washington State, but he had just moved there in March and was actually working as a pipe fitter on the UNR campus at the time that Bree disappeared. He he had also conveniently sold his truck in Kellogg, Idaho, on his way up to Washington. A few days after this initial interview, detectives approached James's girlfriend, Carlene. 
They'd been together for about six years at that point and also admitted that they have a four-year-old son together. She told detectives that their relationship was tumultuous at times and that she did find women's underwear in his truck, but that he said he stole them from a laundromat in Washington. Stole them? Like like red flag after red flag of this dude. Yeah, even weirder. Detectives Imagine that's your alibi to your wife, your girlfriend. Kid brings in panties and you go, oh yeah, I stole those from a laundromat. Even that in itself is strange. Like It's, it's weird. It, it, it's just as much of a reason for me to break it off as it would be to say, yeah, I cheated on you. Like mm-hmm. it's, it's all red flags. So detectives asked his girlfriend if she would be willing to let them get a sample of their son's DNA to see if it had a connection to the perpetrator's DNA. As James's son, this was as close as they were going to get to getting James's DNA without his cooperation. So Carlene agreed and allowed them to get a swab for, from her and James's son. On November 25th, it was confirmed that the DNA found on Brianna's body and on the other rape victims compared with the DNA from James's son determined that James Bila could not be excluded as a suspect and that the child had to be a close relative of the suspect. So James Bila was arrested when he arrived at his son's daycare to pick him up, hopefully not in front of the child. He was charged with murder, first-degree kidnapping, and sexual assault. Once they had him in custody, police obtained a court order for James's DNA, and he was required to provide it. And it was, of course, a match. The trial was held in May of 2010. A jury of eight women and six men found James guilty on all counts and sentenced him to the death penalty for the rape and murder of Brianna Dennison, as well as the attacks on the other victims. During the penalty phase, the state alleged that the four aggravating circumstances, the crimes of which he was convicted, were sufficient enough to warrant the death penalty. His defense argued that James had a rough upbringing, no criminal record, which actually wasn't true because James had been arrested back in 2002 after he threatened the neighbor of his ex-girlfriend with a knife while he was drunk. But they also said that he was a loving and responsible father and a good provider for his family. But the jury decided that those mitigating circumstances did not outweigh the aggravating circumstances, that he was a dangerous person and needed to be put down. So the death penalty decision was affirmed and he was sentenced to four additional life sentences to be served consecutively for his other crimes. Brianna's law in Nevada was also put into action, which mandates that anyone arrested for a felony has to give up their DNA. The law mandates that felony arrests including or include a cheek swab upon booking, and then if their arrest is deemed legitimate, the DNA is then cross-referenced to see if that person arrested is connected to any other crimes. But if the arrest is not deemed legitimate, in other words, if no probable cause is found to formally charge the person, then the DNA would be destroyed before any cross-referencing is performed. Exactly 10 years after Brianna's untimely death, her cousin, Caitlin Dennison, went missing. In January of 2018, Caitlin told her family that she was going to Midland, Texas with the man that she met in Reno. She allegedly boarded a flight to Midland and called her family on January 10th at about 2.30 p.m. to indicate that she was in Midland and she was calling them by using the Wi-Fi at a Walmart there. During this call, she admitted to her family that she was scared for her life 
and she has not been heard from since. Oh my gosh, got the goosebumps. That's so freaking scary. So um, I just think about if that was your daughter or if that was your son and like just all the evil in the world. These episodes are effed. You're doing a great job writing it and saying, man, these stories are sad. I think that this story is one of those exceptionally sad cases because it's like how much is one family expected to take? I was just thinking that when you said 10 years later, another one in their family. Mm -hmm. Good Lord. Like first her dad commits suicide and then... Brianna is abducted and killed under horrendous, violent, disgusting circumstances. And then Caitlin goes missing. And it's man. just like, man, this family has, I mean, it's its worse than bad luck. It's like a curse. Mm-hmm. So um, if you if you happen to know anything about Caitlin's disappearance, I'm going to be posting um, her last known whereabouts. And I'll also be posting this on our social media accounts, mama.mysterypodcast. We've got like a map, um, what she was wearing when she was last seen. And when did that happen? This happened in 2018. Mm. Caitlin's loved one said in a a Facebook post in a group dedicated to finding her, um, they said, quote, we we have also confirmed that Caitlin was seen looking for work at Rick's Cabaret in Midland or Odessa, Texas. If you worked here or know someone who worked here in January of 2018, please message us. Someone has to have seen something, end quote. Caitlin is described as having blonde hair, blue eyes, five feet tall, and about 120 pounds. She has a tattoo on her left finger of an alien head, and also the letter M. She also has a Libra scale tattoo on her left forearm. In addition, she has two piercings on each side of her nose and a piercing on her bottom lip. When she boarded the plane, she was believed to be wearing black leggings with small holes that lined the sides of the leggings, and then a white faux fur vest and black snow boots with brown, black, and white fur on the calf. So again, I'll share the missing person information, um, the poster, the map of where she was last seen, everything to our socials. So if you have any information, just please reach out. That's a freaking heartbreaker. Yeah, it's a very sad case. All right. Anything to add? I got nothing to add on this one. Yeah. Oh, do you want to finish off the intro with what you wrote during this episode? <laughs> I, I didn't write it. I went to chat GPT and it wrote it for me. Oh, nice. I would never have known. You could have just, could have just taken claimed credit it. for it. Yeah. So um, while I was telling you guys this story, this is what Austin was doing. Hit it. Kelly on the mic, Mama Mysteries, the brand. In the world of true crime, she takes a stand. Her podcast echoes like a thrilling symphony, unveiling mysteries with forensic wizardry. Man, I should have said that I wrote this. That would have been crazy. Freaking bars. She's the hostess with the mostest, bringing tales to the light. Every episode gripping like a crime scene at night. Kelly's words, a lyrical investigation. Mama Mysteries podcast, a true revelation. From unsolved cases to the darkest of plots, her storytelling prowess ties all the knots. In the realm of crime, Kelly's the guide. Mama Mysteries podcast where the truth resides. Wow. Mic drop. Mama. Mystery. (laughs) That was amazing. Out. Bye.